You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Welcome back to the second episode in the 2023 Starter Series on Max's Island. This episode is titled For a Short Time and we'll reflect on two stories from 2022 where a person entered the lives of each of our guests for just a short period yet made a momentous impact. Firstly, Let's listen to Simon White, someone who has been a successful journalist in newspapers and online for many years all around Australia. He spent some of this journey in South Australia, working as the racing writer for the Adelaide Advertiser, and it was during his time there he got to meet and become friends with a particularly colourful horse racing identity. Following on from a suggestion from his editor, and since it was the 25th anniversary of the Fine Cotton Affair, that infamous horse substitution ring-in at Eagle Farm Racecourse in Queensland, Simon started to look for one of the key characters in this affair, Hayden Haitana. The trainer of Fine Cotton was now living in and around the fringes of Adelaide and leading quite a mysterious life. This story is one of genuine connection and friendship that ends with Simon being able to do for Hayden something that nobody else was able to do in the previous 25 years and that was to get him legally back onto a race course. It's a strange and unusual tale, and it, it's probably a story that um, I'll carry with me the rest of my career and, and remember as the most bizarre, pr- probably. So to give a bit of background, Hayden Haitana was the... Um, the trainer of fine cotton which of course is the uh most people will know about the the fine cotton ring in very well dark weird tragic comedic episode in, in australian racing and just to give people a bit of background in case they don't know um fine cotton was a a fairly moderately performed racehorse who was bought by a, a con man in northern new south wales i think it was in uh, 1984 the idea was that they would run fine cotton inverted commas fine cotton in a race at, at eagle farm in brisbane can you but, reco- sorry can you recall the name of the horse that actually ran 
Yes, I, I can. So the original horse that was meant to run, so the idea was that they'd run another place, a horse in place of fine cotton. It would be a lookalike. Uh, it would be a much better performed horse. Fine cotton would have very big odds because it was poorly performed. They'd back it at big odds. They'd substitute in the better performed horse and all win a lot of money was the idea. The original better performed horse was a horse called Dashing Saltair. Unfortunately, a couple of weeks out from the race, uh, it had to be, well, it was injured in a paddock incident, ran into some barbed wire, had to be replaced at short notice with another horse. They found trouble getting a lookalike horse. They finally bought another horse with a check that <laughs> bounced, <laughs> which is probably indicative of the, the whole saga. But they bought another horse called Bold Personality, which then ran as fine cotton at Eagle Farm in, in August 1984. Many, many strange parts to this tale. One is that Bold Personality didn't really look like fine cotton. Um, they actually had to, in some cases, paint the horse with with uh, human hair dye to try and make it look more like uh, fine cotton. And there was also, uh, I think fine cotton had quite distinctive, I guess, white socks on his feet. And, and that was the other part of it. They used, um, well, they used paint to try and paint uh, white on this horse's feet, which was another part of the the, uh, the tale that didn't really work. So it was a, um, a comedy of errors, you, you might say. Let's come back to the main character, Hayden Haitana, because he was pretty much a knockabout guy, horse trainer, who really wasn't, didn't have too many enemies, did he? No, he was a, he was a very likeable guy. To, to set a bit more of the scene, I was living in uh, Adelaide. Um, I'd moved there from Brisbane myself in, at the end of 2008, and I was living there in 2009 working at the Adelaide Advertiser. The Adelaide Advertiser had a, a weekend magazine called SA uh, Weekend. And the idea that the editor of that had was that the Fine Cotton Affair was coming up for its 25th anniversary. Hayden Haitana was known to live um, and frequent uh, country South Australia. And, and how many years did he... Had he been in jail though? Because he was he was he went to jail for the fine yeah. I think the, I think the jail term was relatively short. Right. I think it might have only been a, a year or two. Right. Um, and then he got out, and then he he sort of had this life as a a bit of a drifter. He'd he'd drift sort of between a couple of areas of of South Australia uh, down Goolwa Way, which is um, sort of the the I guess sort of south southeast coastal from from Adelaide get, heading down towards sort of Mount Gabia Victor Harbour those kind of areas um, and he also used to spend a bit of time in the Mallee which is sort of inland um, out from from Murray Bridge anyway he was known to um, known to frequent South Australia he was a bit of a ghost in some ways and so I got tasked with the the, with tracking him down to do a 25th anniversary of Fine Cotton story. Now, my knowledge of Fine Cotton by that stage was it was something that I heard of as as a kid. You know, as a kid growing up in the 80s, if you had a family that was into sport or horse racing, which which mine was, chances were you you heard of Fine Cotton, and I knew the basic outline of it, but I didn't know probably fair to say a huge amount of details. So. I started trying to track Hayden Hightana down. He didn't live a traditional lifestyle. I did eventually find out that he had a mobile phone, but he, he was one of these people that was sort of off the map to, to an extent. And, and tracking him down 
proved to be quite a challenge. Because he had been warned off race courses, hadn't he? So he wasn't able to technically get onto a race course, so that would have been the most likely place to find him, I guess. Yeah, at that stage he was banned um, banned for life from um, going near race horses and going onto a, a racetrack. He um, did used to perform the sneak on <laughs> occasionally, which he... Uh, which he quite enjoyed. My initial efforts to track him down, I remember them being his brother, um, Pat Haitana, who was a, a jockey, was living in, and working at that stage um, around one of the, the country Victorian um, racetracks. I believe it might have been Mornington, I think it was. So it, that started out as my um, original line of inquiry, trying to you know get in touch with someone there and saying, you know, do you know Pat Haitana? If you see him, can you tell him I'm looking for his brother? <laughs> and I can't remember the total turn of events, but eventually Hayden heard that I was looking for him uh, and actually called me at the, the Adelaide Advertiser's office, which was a, a really weird experience. We eventually arranged to meet. I think it might have been the, the week after that so this has gone from i probably started looking for him in autumn to winter of 2009 we would have spoken later that year in the meantime the 25th anniversary of the fine cotton affair came and came and went in august and we never caught up until i reckon it was probably uh april or may of uh 2010 in the in the end so there was a little bit of time elapsed there in the meantime we had tried several meetings but there was always something that came up that meant that he couldn't make it i've still got and i've got it in front of me a um a a six-page handwritten note that he left me one day after he he was meant to come into the advertiser he couldn't make it so he he left me this note which is actually a really entertaining (laughs) read all these years later on and then we finally did meet and it was quite out of the blue i'd probably given up on actually meeting him you know I had a mobile number for him by that stage but he wasn't always reliable at picking up the phone I figured it was probably never going to happen I was sitting at my office one Friday morning I reckon it might have been I was primarily a racing rider phone rang sure enough it's Hayden and he he says oh you know are you going to the races tomorrow at Morfittville and I said well yeah I'm I'm working so I'm going there and he said oh I'll meet you in the bar after the fifth race and I thought oh that's pretty um pretty interesting i don't know how he's going to manage that one <laughs> anyway i um went to the races sure enough uh at a certain time of the afternoon my phone rings and it's hayden and i said are you, are you in the bar i'll come and meet you and he said no i'm just about to leave i'm going to um get on i think it was either the uh the train or the tram to go home and i said well i'll, I'll rush out and meet you you know i don't want to don't want this opportunity to pass without meeting you so i went outside and uh found him he'd snuck into the course naturally he was very aggrieved because he'd had to pay full price to sneak into the course he was technically should have been eligible for a seniors discount (laughs) but uh he couldn't get it because that he would have to show him his id then and then he wouldn't have been allowed in the course so we had a bit of a laugh about that arranged to meet for me to go down to gulwa which was where he was living uh the following week he gave me a dress and stuff i was going to go down on the i'm pretty sure it was the wednesday morning that i went down there i gotta confess when he he arranged that meeting i thought i'm going to turn up there and he won't be there i did turn up and he wasn't there (laughs) but that was only because he'd gone to a a doctor's appointment he he'd left the house open to me he'd left a form guide out for me he'd left me stuff to, to make coffee and i had this sort of weird 
probably 45 minutes or, or, or an hour of sitting around in Hayden Hightana's house waiting for him to, to come back and, and hang out with me. And did he ever get back on race courses before he died? He did, he did. Uh, writing the story, and, and it's the most... When I say the most remarkable story that I, I've ever written, it's the most remarkable topic that I've ever got to write about with the most remarkable access to a, to a, to a person involved in it that I will, will ever get. And so when I'd written the story, and, and I was really, really nervous about, you know, I spoke to some other people. I spoke to his daughter, Mandy, who, who remembered the times around um, fine cotton. You know, I spoke to, um, you know, other trainers who, who kind of knew him behind the scenes. I wrote this story. I was really nervous around how H would receive it and the the Saturday that it published I was actually uh might actually been the 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 day after I was actually out for a for a meal with friends at a restaurant and he called through and I thought oh he's read the story because it ran the day before (laughs) I read the read the story what does he think of it and anyway he loved it but it really left a mark on me the story that you know H hadn't had the opportunity through um, his his lack of means, I guess, to to really test the validity of his ban. And it struck me as perhaps there was a way that I could help. So what I ultimately did was I spoke to him about it and it's kind of unusual for a journalist because you're not meant to really get involved with the people that you're writing stories about. You're meant to take an um, impartial view mo- most of the time. Anyway, I, I guess I was so moved by his plight or situation and it really did seem unfair to me as well that he was banned you know going on for for 30 years later so um yeah ultimately what I did was I I said to him I'll help you write a letter and we'll get some references together and we'll send it off to to Racing Queensland which he'd obviously been um you know his life ban was originally uh placed in Queensland because that's where Eagle Farm Racecourse was um, extended to all states, but only Queensland could uh, could really revoke it. So I said, I'll, I'll help you write a letter. I'll get some references together. We'll send it off and we'll see how we go. I started writing the letter and then I left Adelaide. I moved back to WA and I was going through my stuff um, one night, like a box of stuff, and I found this this letter, mostly finished, that I'd never actually completed. So I got back in touch with Hayden said listen I've got this letter I haven't sent it yet we never finished it let's let's do it so finalized the letter um, sent it off for for him to sign and then send to uh, Queensland Racing Stewards along with supporting references and then probably a few months or six months after we after well of course, Hayden being Hayden, I never knew that it had been sent. So I'd sent the letter to him for him to sign and send on. But it was, a, in my mind, a bit of a raffle about whether he'd actually did it. He clearly did it because a few months later, maybe six months later, I was listening to um, 6PR actually. And all of a sudden in this news bulletin, it came through that, you know, uh, infamous horse trainer Hayden Hightana has had his uh, life ban revoked from the, uh, from, from the fine cotton affair. must have made you feel pretty good it did it did I felt a bit guilty for having allowed it to to linger a bit that letter and I wish I'd um, done it earlier now I think pretty sure that was either 2013 or 2014 2013 sticks in my mind as um, as when it was Hayden lived another four years after that I kind of wish now that I'd done it a couple of years 
earlier and given him another couple of years on track. But, you know, his, his view was, and he had grandkids who he doted on by that stage, he wanted to take his grandkids to the races and, and show them what um, he'd once done for a living. You know, he still loved the horses. Um, yeah, so he wanted to get back on track and, and do that. So I'm I'm delighted that hopefully I gave him a, another four years of that. It would have been, um, in retrospect, it would have been great for it to be, be six, but that's life. Um, change for him, it was a turnaround. It was a bit of brightness at the end of what had been a, a, a pretty dark tunnel at times. So I was I was glad that I was able to help in some small way. Now we'll hear from Dean Margetts, who at 21 years of age responded to an advertisement in the local newspaper to become a football umpire. This began a speedy journey to the AFL, where he eventually umpired 376 games, and that's after 111 league games in the WA Football League. Across a career spanning more than 20 years, he featured in 12 finals, two of which were preliminaries, and is an AFL life member. During his time umpiring, while still based in the West, he travelled well over 200 times to the east coast of Australia to umpire games. This weekly traverse across the country was just a day's work for the self-confessed footy head who saw umpiring as his sport. And it was on one of these trips back from the east when a dramatic mid-air incident occurred. If it wasn't for a chance meeting with someone on board, his life could have changed forever. A decision made by a doctor on board that flight, someone who was in his life for just a short moment of time, probably saved his life. I guess I go back to my footy journey, Tony, where it all started. I played my whole life at the Maddington Footy Club from when I was seven years of age. Dad took me down there. I wasn't quite sure what to expect. Maroon and gold. Socks pulled up to the knees. You know, your dad's your coach and your best mate's the dad's the manager. So I played my whole life from under sevens right the way through to playing about 57 league games for Maddington. Thoroughly loved my time. It was regarded as the family club. Just happens to be this year's our 100th year anniversary, centenary year. I'm actually umpiring a game in a couple of weeks at Maddington. Ironically, we'll get to that a bit later. Uh, so I played, yeah, 57 league games. I got to a point where I lost the passion for the game, not playing the game. And why is that, do you think? Oh, probably just the long, just were unsuccessful as a club on the field. You know, I was not a big, strong bloke. I was skinny, you know, copping a few dead legs and getting roughed up a bit. So I thought, oh, he's playing what I want to do. So I, I quit playing or retired at 21. Um, and then I thought, no, but I still love this game. How do I stay involved? And I, I remember um, contacting our footy club and seeing if I could coach with three of my best mates, Craig Anderson and Shane Logan, still best mates to this day. So we ended up coaching this under-13s team. Uh, we rocked up and there's all these kids there and we had a player in that team and his name was Dominic Cassissi. Ended up ah, being yeah. Port, Adelaide. Port Adelaide football club captain. Really enjoyed playing and co- coaching the kids. Um, thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, got to the point where getting to training at four o'clock was hard with work. So we coached the, the kids for that year, um, myself, Shane and Craig. We made the grand final. Really emotional day, even third. And we tried to make it really professional. We had the streamers and the banners and all the words on the wall. And we got banned by about 13 points. It was really draining though. So you have an idea what it's like at the highest level in these big games. So I enjoyed that. And then it was just by chance, I was reading the local 
comment news and it had umpires wanted and I looked at my mate I said I could do that for a couple of years how fun would that be how hard could it be get a bit of pocket money and, and, and do something different in a game which I would never have thought of you know 10 years ago so I went down to my local um, it was the South Suburban Junior Umpires Association now the Demons District and joined up and I was a little bit older so I started umpiring I was about 21, 22 did um, a couple of years of juniors got up to quickly the under 17s quite fast and just by chance I was umpiring a Huntingdale and Canningvale game and David Johnson the then umpire's boss and you know highly decorated umpire was there his son was playing for Huntingdale and I was doing what I just thought was okay and he came out at half time introduced himself and now I knew who he was because I was a mad footy head I was just go to footy every weekend so I knew the Mike Balls the Greg Scroops the Peter Reppers the David Johnsons Phil O'Reilly um, and he introduced, I said, wow, yeah, I, I know you, David. And he goes, look, I'm, I run the umpires at the Waffle. I think you've got some talent there. We, we might get you to come down and have a pre-season. And I'm like, that'd be great. Here's my address. I scratched down on a piece of paper. And I'm thinking to myself, there is no way the umpire's boss of the Waffle is going to send Deanmar gets this skinny little punk from Maddington <laughs> to join the Waffle. No way. And to his credit, I got this letter in October. Come down, came down. I always thought I was really quite fit. Uh, did the, the bridges 10Ks wasn't as fit as I thought so I knew then that I've got a bit of work to do but thoroughly loved the camaraderie the closeness of the group the competitive nature of the group um, so I did my first um, Colts game in 1998 um, I progressed to reserves pretty quickly did my first league game in 99, 1999 um, East Fremantle South Fremantle Freo Derby at East Sporting was captain for the Sharks and Peter Worsfold was captain for um, South Fremantle did we win? Now, I'm an unabashed South supporter, so that's that. important know to know. I know that, Tony. Um, <laughs> I generally can't remember. I, I, I don't know. It's funny. I, I don't actually know who won that game. So I did that. 2000, season comes around. I do the Waffle Grand Final. So here I am. Wow. I've done, I think I've done 37 league games. I think it was the, the lowest amount of league games a person has done to do a Waffle Grand Final. So it was pretty significant. So then um, pre-season 2002, I was asked to trial for the AFL. There was four spots and there was nine umpires across the country going for it. Uh, it was myself and Mark Fussell. Um, one umpire pulled out through injury. So there was four guys looking, uh, sorry, eight guys looking for four spots. And I said to myself, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a 50-50 chance of getting here. So I just, I made myself as fit as I could. Um, I remember I was a footy head. So I used to know all the players' names, you know, I, you know new players. I would just know their first name. So on field, when we're mic'd up and it comes through on the broadcast, you could hear me using these names. So when the call came in in March 2002 and Jeff Geeson rang me, and he said, Dono, look, we would normally come over and, and deliver the news face-to-face. But since this is a positive call... We're going to tell you over the phone, and he offered me a contract for the AFL. That was in 2002, and here we are, you know, 20 years later, having achieved 377 AFL games, AFL life member, you know, two prelim finals. I've done a game in Dubai. I've done an Anzac Day game. I've just been really blessed with the career that I've had. Could I would have liked to have gone on for a couple more years, probably, um, but sometimes those decisions are taken out of your hands. But I look back very fondly on my time. Um, there's been some ups and downs along the way. It's a, it's a roller coaster ride. I'm probably 100%. But people often ask me, um, Tony, do you regret not doing a grand final? And I, and I don't have a regret because I wouldn't change anything. But would I have loved to have done one? Yes, of course I would. But if someone had said, would you like to do 34 games in a grand final or 377 and all the experiences in there and the people I've met, the friendships I've made, I don't think I'd change that for the world. So 2015, I had a really good pre-season. Um, I was doing a, um, I think it was a NAB Cup game back then. 
it was St Kilda versus Melbourne. It was a really hot day. I remember being at Marvel Stadium, or Eddie had back then, and it was really warm. Like I can remember that the, the heat of the day sort of struck me for a Melbourne sort of March day. Did the game, uh, went okay, I think. Um, did my usual, um, did my recovery, jumped on the the car, got to the airport, you know, went through all the the lounges and jumped on the plane. I was sitting in, I think, the the, the row behind one and two, uh, so I was just behind the the first classes or the business class. About 15 minutes into that flight, Tony, I, I started to feel some pain in my chest. And I thought, oh my God, that's unusual. What's that? And I thought maybe it's just a bit of fatigue from the game. So I got up, went for a walk, back of the plane, just sort of wet my face and um, just bumped in one of the air hostess. Look, I just don't feel great, but um, um, do you have like a wet towel? Because I just feel really hot. And she goes, oh, here's a little chucks. And she gave it to me and off I went. And about 10 minutes after I sat down, I, I, I just still didn't feel right. And so I went back down there and I said, look, I, I just don't feel great. And she said, well, take a seat here and we'll um, um, we'll get you another cloth and give you some water. And I sat down. Then I started to go a bit sort of white. You know, my, my colour had sort of come out of my face. And then they got a little bit worried. So then they paged for a doctor on the plane. And I'm thinking, wow, it's a bit serious. I just sort of had a tummy ache. Um, and then the doctor comes running down, happened to be sitting in 1A or up the front with his family. And his name was Dr. Livingston. And ended up coming a reasonable contact of mine in time. So he assessed me, he was, a, he was a Scottish fellow and he was asking, um, what were you doing? And I, I said, I was umpiring footy. He said, well, ref and cricket, were you? And I said, no, umpiring footy. So the connection with what we did, he had no clue. He looked in my eyes and tested me and um, he said, look, oh, I don't want to say this, but I think we need to probably get you to a hospital pretty quickly. Something just doesn't look right in, in the way you look and the way you, um, sort of the signs you're showing. They weren't thinking it was a heart attack were they no no um and some would question whether i did have a heart that's <laughs> to be decided by other people but no it wasn't that it was uh, they, they didn't know he didn't know without all these um his box of tricks he was just going on what he sort of i guess a gut feel and they said look um we've got two options we either divert this plane to Ad, uh, adelaide or we go to kalgoorlie and then he said look i don't think kalgoorlie have the things that you're going to need we probably need to go to 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 Adelaide and I said look I don't want to be that person who delays this 184 people getting home to their families late because I've got a tummy ache a bit of gastro yeah and they said look I understand what you're saying but I think this is a decision that we need to take out of your hands and, and make for you so that's, a, that's a massive call for somebody huge. to make and, and I did that scare you when yep. he made those when he started saying that yeah because the, I guess the I'm interested to know what the reaction was from the flight crew because they must get ill people all the time and the decision to make to say we'll just sit down and toughen it out yeah. is is probably a common thing but for them how did they react to his uh, interpretation they, they of the just situation? Sort of, they, well, they, they sort of accepted it like i guess they're trained to not show stress and 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 anxiety because if i if i see their reactions and i start to panic because this is diverting a plane tony this is yeah. this is big time stuff so they make the announcement that um, unfortunately due to the ill health of a passenger, um, we have to divert this plane. Then you hear a few groans and a few things and I'm going, oh, well, that's me. I'm at the back and I'm feeling really uncomfortable about the whole process, but at the same time feeling not great. So we land the plane. There was a few nurses who were on the plane who came to check on me because they realised that the person who was not well, me, at the back was, you know, looked after. Then they bring this wheelchair on and I get put in the wheelchair and... If you can imagine, you're getting pulled backwards, but you're facing the passengers as you get pulled out. <laughs> and it was really uncomfortable. And some people sort of said, oh, good luck, mate. I hope you're okay. And then I heard one person say, um, oh, at least the Eagles going to get a fair crack this year because my guests <laughs> won't be out there. So people sort of knew who I was, even on this plane. So I was like, gee, great. In my time of need, I'm still getting a whack. So I got pulled out of the plane. Still feeling really uncomfortable. These poor passengers have to wait and 
go through a delay. And then I got to the hospital and long story short, I had an ulcer which had burst and ruptured a hole in my in my abdomen, which where on earth that came from, I don't know. So they had some, well, they, did, they were talking about either ripping my stomach open and do, or doing keyhole. Thankfully, it was keyhole because if that surgery was the, the, the chest one, it was like a six-week recovery and I'd have to come home by a train. So I ended up being in Adelaide for, for two weeks, you know, up and all the cores and almost had to learn how to walk again. It was a real tough injury. You mentioned the Dr Livingston. It was really a sliding door moment that he was on that plane and he was in your life for a very short time. Is he still in your life? Uh, no, he's not. Um, but we did catch up with Dr. Livingston and his family. Um, they'd moved down to Albany. That was that was why he was flying to um, to Perth. He was on, you know, making this move. And um, I think the media on Channel 7 today, tonight, wanted to do a story. They got in contact with him and they came to my home and... I bought him some Scottish flags and I signed a footy for him and a shirt and put him into it and had him out the backyard doing some bounces. So it was a bit of a fun thing. He met his children. Because the reality is, Tony, um, you know, if he didn't make that decision, you know, when I got to hospital, they, they said, look, if you hadn't have diverted the plane, that bled out, you know, things could have been pretty bad for you. So, And I knew what that meant. So that was pretty significant. And there are... I don't think of him every day, but there are times where I'll, I'll, I'll glance up at a plane and there'll be a moment where I'll, I'll often... I generally when I get on a plane now I walk past where he would have sat and it's hard not to think at times but I did travel a lot post the injury so it became a bit of the norm but yeah I've still got photos it's, it's funny I probably should even send him a random text and see how he's going now this might flesh that out because I, I probably do I'm a lot more than what I've given him yeah
every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone, and nothing. 